Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Welcome back to the Duocast, Jason. Thank you, Brian. It's good to be here. So what'd you think of the Tommy Avalone episode? That guy's a hoot. He really is. I mean, I like his approach to filmmaking, kind of natural flow to it. I remember you guys talking about just tabling a project for now instead of like completely getting rid of a project, keeping footage along the way and he'll use it eventually kind of approach. I like that. Yeah. Well, like with his run for mayor in New Jersey, he ran for mayor at the age of 20 and uh, it sounds like did it almost as a stunt Mm -hmm. or maybe um, a dare type of thing. And he has a bunch of footage from that. So he was interviewed by national media. Why are you running for mayor? You know, what's your platform? And, and I think he got a kick out of all of the attention that came from that right. and has all this footage and he doesn't know what he's going to do with it, <laughs> uh, but he saves it. And, and we, in the context of that conversation, I think my question was, do you ever find that when you're pursuing a certain narrative or a certain story, like this is the documentary I want to shoot that it just doesn't work out for whatever reason and you have to stop and go in a different direction or kill the project. Right. And that's when I think when he talked about what you're saying, which is, yeah, that happens. And uh, we just save the footage and we may use it down the road. Right. Yeah. I appreciated his, his approach to interviews because he didn't go where I wanted him to go just because it was going to make the conversation flow better. Right. You know, he, re- he pushed back on a couple of things. He sure did, yeah. And when I asked him, you know, what was it like to pursue or chase Bill Murray? And he's, and he's like, it wasn't a chase. Right. So, no, that's not the word I would use for it. And it was like, whoa, okay, that's a fair criticism. So, oh, yeah, you know, no. maybe, maybe that's too strong of a word. And then he was like, well, did you chase me? You called me and asked me for this interview. Right. And, <laughs> and so, it's fun to get that kind of pushback a little bit because- you know, sometimes as interviewers, we think we know how to frame a, a conversation or an issue or a question, mm-hmm. and we don't get it right. And and I like it when guests are like, no, that's not actually what happened. I didn't chase Bill Murray. In fact, the whole conceit of this film was that he was not in the film. Right. And so, uh, that was kind of fun to have that back and forth with Tommy. And, and also, if um, listeners are interested in hearing Some of our chat that didn't make the cut, at the beginning, we were talking about Tommy's severed head of Bill Murray. I shouldn't call it a severed head. It's a a mask, a Bill Murray uh, mask that he had with him in the office during the interview. Yeah, it's the one from the movie. From the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course, uh, listeners are not going to be able to see that when they listen to the podcast. But if you go to the YouTube channel, uh, at DreamPathPod you'll see that exchange that we had and it was pretty fun. Yeah, it was good. You know, one of the the takeaways that I had from Tommy's interview was that I think it's important for filmmakers to care what their audience wants to see to a certain degree. But I also think it's important for the filmmaker to have their own vision that they execute on without regard to worrying about what their audience wants to see. Right. I thought that was a great comment to make and a nice takeaway from his interview because he said that sometimes people will ask him, why should I watch your film? Tell me what I'm going to get out of it. And uh, his response was, you know what? 
it's not that important to me. Yeah, don't bother. Yeah. So it's not my job to explain to you why this is something you need to see. You know, that's up to you. And uh, you know what the concept of the film is, but that's not my job. My job is to put together this film that I think is compelling and uh, tells a story that hasn't been told before and then let viewers and, and you know audience members decide whether it's worth their time. And I kind of like that the attitude. I do too. It seems kind of liberating too, because if you're too worried about what the audience is going to think of the film, I think you can get lost in the egoic process. Sure. You know, because you're looking for, all right, what kind of feedback am I going to get on this? Mm -hmm. Instead of at the end of the process, being satisfied with what you put together and produced. Right. It's more, more of an organic process that way. It is. It's not always about the sales pitch. Right. You know, so he even said, I'm not, I'm not a salesman. I'm not trying to pitch it. Just watch it or don't. Yeah. And, and don't care too much one way or the other. Right. About what happens. Exactly. Yeah. And, th- and that actually is a very Bill Murray Zen-like approach to filmmaking. In the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So we were texting the other day mm-hmm. and you had watched The Social Dilemma, which is the documentary. Oh, yes, man. The documentary by Jeff Orlowski, whose interview we replayed just a couple weeks ago to commemorate the premiere of The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that film? Man, it's, that is such a uh, mind blower to me. I mean, I knew, you know, going into it back in the day, social media, when it was just starting out, I knew, you know, that I'm putting my information out there. I'm putting myself onto this thing and filling out my information on there. I know that what that's all about. I didn't realize the scope of, you know, the way they're making money off of us and how advertisers pay money to them to get our clicks. Yeah. To get that data. Yeah. And makes me not want to go on there very much. It's pretty spooky when you see under the hood, mm-hmm. you talk to the engineers who actually created the like button. <laughs> yeah. The people yep. who invented the like button on Facebook are interviewed in this movie and they talk about the reason they created it. And it's not just to make the poster feel better about their post to know that people like it. Mm-hmm. It's to gather data. Yep. Like you're saying, I, I think we all realized that Facebook is not in it for benevolent purposes. Nope. And to take it a step further, I think we all realize there's a certain degree of evil in the way that they approach their business model. And when I say evil, I mean they are totally profit-driven. Completely, yeah. And if they're going to make more money by allowing foreign governments to create fake accounts and influence elections through false narratives Mm -hmm. in these blog posts and articles... And they're going to make more money doing that versus not allowing those accounts to do that. They're going to go with profit. It's terrible, man. And that's what's happened. And there's so much happening behind the scenes at Facebook that is not transparent in terms of um, the influence of foreign governments, the influence of corporations over the minds of young people, over the minds of adults like you and I. This is a very small glimpse under the hood or behind the curtain, so to speak of really what's happening at Facebook and other social media companies too. Well, one of the things I also noticed in that, um, that it talks about it is it becomes, it's just as bad as being addicted to a drug. You become addicted to that screen time and people are, you know, becoming depressed. Suicide rates are going up. They're going through withdrawals when they don't have their phones or they can't have their phones. They get very defensive about it. Yeah. You know, if you try to take 
a phone away from a student, he might get violent with you. That's how bad it's gotten. Yeah. Well, try to take away, uh, take the phone away from your child, whether okay. they're six or 16 or 18, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's considered a, an act of war yeah. if you do that to your child. It totally is. Yeah. It's that dopamine hit. Yep. They're, they're constantly, we're all looking for the dopamine hit. You Absolutely. Know, the, the little notification that you get when someone has liked your post uh-huh. is the equivalent of a hit, you know, a hit from a drug. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, boom, you keep getting that, that reinforcement. And that's why we're constantly picking up our phones, looking at our screens, looking for that next notification, listening for that next bell that goes off. Mm-hmm. Like we're animals. Yep. We're, we're the Pavlovian dogs. We're being programmed. Yes. Yes. Yet we're still on Facebook. I know. I don't think I'll stop. <laughs> I just, I'm kind of watching, kind of being a little bit more aware of my activity now on Facebook. Yeah. Like, especially with ads or things that come up. Yeah. I think you're right. I think we just have to be careful. I know some people have shut down their accounts and I really admire them for doing that. Mm-hmm that resolve to do what's right. And I think that is the right thing to do. But at the same time, I have folks that I only connect with through social media, you know, friends from high school and family members, even same, same here. It's just kind of the hub over the last 10 years of, of where I've connected with folks. But maybe the answer is that we should be connecting in different ways. It makes it even harder that we have a pandemic going on too. You know, social media becomes very convenient because the face-to-face isn't a, a reality sometimes. Right. Especially now, you know. Well, yeah, and, it, and it's unfortunate that in the pandemic situation, we're all sort of starved for a couple of things. We're starved for a connection, a human connection, yep. which Facebook kind of gives us that through, you know, just chatting with friends and commenting on their posts and they're commenting on our, our posts. But also the newsfeed, too. I think we're getting further away from network television yep. news. In fact, I haven't watched television in years, literally. Not me either. I have TVs in my house, but I, I do not watch network television Mm-mm. and I don't watch the news. So my, my sole source of information is online newspapers, Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times. But when you are part of that ecosystem, that social media ecosystem, you are being manipulated because they're deciding these companies, Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, even LinkedIn, you know, they're deciding what you're going to see, when you're going to see it, how much you're going to see something. Right. And it's that type of power that they have over our psychology that's really scary and we need to be mindful of. And it doesn't mean that we need to go cancel all of our Facebooks or delete our accounts, you know, right now categorically that needs to be needs to happen. Maybe it does for some people. Right. But I think the people that decide not to do it are still morally sound and correct as as long as we are aware of what's going on. Right. Another thing about Facebook that's happened recently that's kind of ticked me off, even though I don't do it, um, a lot of artists have been live streaming since this pandemic started and playing their music on Facebook going live, which is great. You get to hear them play some songs. And, and of course, they, they set up like, uh, here's, here's my Venmo if you guys want to send a donation, you know, whatever, help out. I'm not working right now, whatever. Uh, Facebook's basically starting to squash that. Why? You know, I don't know the full details on that. They're going to start limiting live streaming on there and uh, live music in particular because, I don't know, I mean, it's probably because they're not really making any money off of it. These guys are making money off them. It's not a copyright issue or? 
It could be some of that too, yeah. you know, but the, most of the people I'm, I've, I watch on there play their own music. So hmm. I think some of it has to do with, um, you know, publishing rights for covers. Yeah. And stuff like that too. But it seems to be like anytime something starts to catch on that we can go, Oh, that's that we can enjoy it this way. Well, Facebook's going to start limiting that now. So, well, I think what they're looking for, what you're touching on is something I've noticed and I've talked to you about over the last year, which is that, um, when you have anything that you're trying to promote mm-hmm. on Facebook, Facebook recognizes that you are trying to promote it and they will tamp that down and they will squash it basically mm-hmm. and keep it from being seen. And so you'll notice you post a picture of your puppy, you may get a hundred likes mm-hmm. within the first hour. You post a, an article on, you know, from your business or for me, uh, an announcement about an episode. Hey, you know, Tommy Avalone's uh, interview is up. You'll see very, very few likes and very few engagements from people who follow it, even though there are thousands of people who follow the account. And um, the reason for that is Facebook is looking for you, me, to pay money to promote that post. Yeah. They're like, look, nobody's seen this. The only way for it to be seen is for you to pay Mark Zuckerberg $150 to $200, and then we'll think about showing it to a certain number of people in your, in your feed. Yeah. And so it's that type of hijacking of content and holding it hostage until they get the money that they want that really is upsetting for people like me. I think it should be a platform. I'm, I'm okay with businesses making money. Mm-hmm. They set up this platform and they have staff and they have this infrastructure they have to pay for and they're a profit-making corporation and that's fine. Do that through ads. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, don't, don't stamp down the voices of the folks who have just regular accounts with Facebook mm-hmm. and hold those posts hostage until you get the money you want. Right. So you can show it to a certain number of people. So, you know, we've gone down a rabbit hole here with Facebook and, but I, I think it is, you know, a, a point of frustration that will never be resolved until a massive amount of people cancel their accounts. Right. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't either. It's growing. In fact. Yeah. You know, I think Facebook is, is one of those corporations that is here to stay and is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until there's some type of regulation that, you know, maybe a, a new administration that comes in and just breaks it up. Yeah. Says it's too big. You know, we're going to break you up into five different companies or whatever. That might be necessary, actually. Yeah. Well, they're, they're extremely powerful, obviously. I mean, they're very influential and they decided the 2016 election from what we can tell. Yeah. And who knows what will happen in 2020. Oh, I just want this year to be over, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of wanting this year to be over, uh, rest in peace, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, yeah. Major loss. Yeah, that was a major shock mm-hmm. to get that news. I, you know, I went on social media immediately when I heard my wife told me, and she's like, "Did you hear the news about RBG?" And I said, "No," and I just knew in my heart what what that meant because I think we were all, you know, on the edge of our seat, really, um, with knowing how sick she's been and her bouts of cancer. But I went on a social media, and and you just see the outpouring of um, a sadness, but mainly fear. Oh, yeah. Uh, A lot of sadness, uh, a lot of anger, and then a lot of fear. What is going to happen now? You have this icon of the women's movement. Yep. An advocate for equality, gender equality in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Who has been just a champion. Just a pioneer, man. 
Yeah, in in the 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 legal world, and she's gone. So who is she going to be replaced with, and what direction is the court going to go? Well, I think we kind of have an idea. Yeah, I mean, it's not good. No, that's my opinion. Just so everybody knows, I'm not I'm not going to get on a political soapbox at all. Kind of try to keep myself out of that, but I know where I know where this is going. Yeah, yeah. So there's you know, and I don't want to go there either in terms of the politics. Just, you know, you and I are not political experts by any no. means, <laughs> but in terms of the human loss, you know, it's it's pretty devastating to know how much she accomplished in her 87 years. But also, the political loss is big. The loss to the legal world is enormous. But I still have hope. The Supreme Court is an entity that is hopefully, over time, not as touched by politics as we think they are. Right. And the reason I have hope is, um, for instance, uh, Justice uh, John Paul Stevens was appointed by, I think, uh, Gerald Ford by a Republican. Mm-hmm. And he was a Republican, Stevens. And he was known initially for a lot of very conservative opinions. But over time, he evolved and his opinions became more and more kind of aligned with uh, liberals than with conservatives. Right. And we've seen that with John Roberts as well, who was appointed by Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen him, you know, he's a swing vote. He's considered a swing vote at this point, even though he's a Bush appointee. He was the deciding vote in the Obamacare decision, and he ruled in favor of Obamacare being constitutional based upon tax reasoning. Um, He said it was basically a a tax, and that's something that Congress can do. I mean, we're really going down (laughs) the the political uh, rabbit hole here by talking about the Supreme Court so extensively. But what I wanted to do was just tell you, Jason, that I do have optimism and hope that no matter what happens with the appointment of her replacement, whether it happens in this administration or the next administration, I think that that court as a whole still has the ability to fend off all the politicized efforts by you know outsiders right? and remain somewhat pure. Well, I'm glad you put it that way, and I'm going to try to be optimistic and hopeful as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think w- what else can we do? Other than try to, I mean, we're we're not going to be um, naive and think that this is just fine. It's not. Mm-hmm. But we have to hold on to hope and optimism just to hold on to our humanity, I think. I agree. Shouldn't we believe in our Supreme Court system, you know, in that that structure that has held up for hundreds of years? I, we should, yeah. I hope so. I mean, I've I've lost a lot of faith in a lot of institutions over the last four years. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I still hold out hope that that institution will hold up. I'm going to try. Yeah. Speaking of apocalypses, <laughs> 2020. Here we go again. 2020 has been a, quite an apocalyptic year, but um, there is a zombie apocalypse movie that I watched recently on, uh, I think it's on Netflix, but it's called The Train to Busan. Hmm. It might be Hulu, but it's a it's a South Korean zombie movie. Oh, wow. It came out in like 2016 or 17. My oldest daughter told me about it. She's like, you have to watch this. And so we, we watched it last week. And uh, I was so impressed with the, the story itself was pretty standard zombie stuff. I mean, yeah. you have, you have you know, zombies, which is the premise of the movie. It's, it's, a, it's a virus or something that gets out and 
very similar to 2020. <laughs> but the, the, the human story that is really the, the real story of the movie. And the zombies are the storytelling device more than the story itself. So the, the, the actors in the movie were great. There's a little girl who was kind of the star of the show who's uh, fantastic. And uh, it's all in Korean, so it's subtitled. Okay. But it is one of the best zombie movies I've ever seen. Nice. Yeah. Edge of your seat type of stuff. But just the relationships that you see in this film are, uh, they're sweet, they're unique, they feel very real and authentic. And so that's the great thing about zombie movies and zombie television series is they're, they're really not about zombies. <laughs> it's about the relationships. Right. And so over time, whether it's in the film or over the course of, you know, the character arcs in these long television series like Walking Dead, the zombies are just kind of, they're background noise. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, there's some zombies. All right. What's going to happen next? What is this person going to do to that person? Are they going to abandon them? You know, how are they going to deal with the stress of this moment? Are they going to be the hero? Are they going to be the antagonist? Are they going to be a coward? And it kind of, those extreme environments like natural disaster movies or zombie movies really test people's characters, I think. And that's what I love about zombie movies. And that's what I loved about Train to Busan. You know, you're going to think this is kind of weird, but I've never watched any zombie movies at all. Oh man. Never. What do you recommend? What is your favorite zombie movie? Is this the one? This is probably my favorite. Okay. I Am Legend is another one that's pretty good with Will Smith. Okay. Uh, I think World War Z might be a, a zombie movie oh, with yeah, Brad yeah. Pitt. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I know what those are, but. Well, if you just Google best, best zombie movies, you know, you'll get a top 10 or top 20 list. And, you know, Night of the Living Dead by George Romero from 1968 is, is, a, is a classic to check out. I don't even know if it's available to watch on streaming services, but that's, um, that's probably one of the first zombie movies. It kind of set the stage for, for how they're done. Um, there's a, a great one called Zombieland with Jesse Eisenberg and Woody Harrelson. That's, it's pretty funny. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And, and Dawn of the Dead is another one that's pretty good. Yeah. I think just look at the top 10 lists and, and, and check them out. You'll see, I mean, you may not be able to get past the absurdity of the premise. So, and I, I think that's totally fair. That's a fair criticism of any zombie movie. But if you can get past the absurdity of it and just look at it as a storytelling device, as a way to push these characters into extreme circumstances, almost like Castaway with okay. Tom Hanks, okay? okay. Yeah. That's, that's a storytelling device. It's stranded on a desert island. And, you know, it's, in a way, it's kind of absurd. Like he's the, the lone survivor from this FedEx plane that crashes. And, and some people may look at this man on a, on a desert island and, and say, well, that's, that's absurd. I'm not going to watch that. But if you, if you look at it as a storytelling device to put this character in an extreme situation and see how they behave and how their humanity is impacted by that situation, same thing with zombies, then you might see these films the way I do. But Train to Busan is, is probably the, the best. Shaun of the Dead is another one. It's a comedy. It's a British comedy, <laughs> a zombie movie. But uh, 28 Days Later is from 2002, and, and that's a Danny Boyle film. Okay. Um, so, and he's great, by the way. So, 28 Days Later is, is one I would check out. And I would say, I would not watch Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> I think it's just too, it's, 19, it's 1968. The effects are not that great, obviously. It's 1968. Right. So, if you're doing it for 
research purposes and you're you're kind of like geeking out on zombie movies, check out Night of the Living Dead. Okay. But if you just want to watch like a really solid zombie movie, World War Z, 28 Days Later, Zombieland, if you're looking for a little comedy, and of course, Train to Busan. Excellent. So what do we have coming up next, Jason? We have an interview with Andrew Cohn. Andrew Cohn, yes. Andrew is uh, the director of a feature film. This is his first feature film. Uh, it's called The Last Shift. And I saw this film at Sundance this year. I was not able to talk to Andrew. I requested an interview and, and did not get one. I think he was too busy. Right. But I was able to talk to his production designer, Audrey Sirawat. Okay, yeah. 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 So I was really fortunate to be able to see this film at a midnight showing. So Richard Jenkins is in it. Of course, you know, Richard is just a, a comedy icon, a dramatic acting icon. Uh, he's been in 100 movies probably. Oh, yeah. Um, but he decided to do this little indie film with Andrew, Sean Paul McGee, and Ed O'Neill. Oh, yeah. Ed, Ed O'Neill. Yeah, cool. Yeah, from Married with Children. Yeah. It's supposed to be a comedy. So it, it's it's kind of categorized as a comedy in some on some websites, but it really is a more complex and layered story than you would think a comedy would be. So I'm not sure if I would categorize it as a comedy. It's more of a drama. So I got to talk to Andrew about it just days before the premiere of that film on Friday, September 25th. Oh, can't wait to watch it. It's a good film. Well, Jason, it's always a lot of fun to talk to you, especially in times like these where, you know, we're dealing with a lot of really heavy issues in politics and in our culture and in the world and just trying to get through 2020. So it's nice to connect with you and talk about these things. Just makes me feel better about the world. Well, I appreciate that, Brian. And thank you for inviting me back. Yeah. Good to see you, man. You too. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>